Well, this evening, uh, we're looking at the second church, the church at Smyrna, in Revelation chapter 2, from verses 8 to 11. Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11. And if you'd like to glance at the sheet that Brenda has given to you, which is really excellent, where they have a good long look at it. And down at the bottom left-hand corner, you will see the way in which these seven churches were designated there. And the arrow is pointing to the order of the seven churches as we study them. And we started last week with Ephesus, uh, the last two weeks. Uh, the church lost its first love. <laughs> now we move further north, as you can see, to the church at Smyrna. And then move on in two weeks' time to the church at Pergamos, as we progress through right through to Laodicea. Now I mentioned last week that there are two thoughts about these seven churches. They actually existed, as you can see. So they have a historical element attached to them. Also, they have a prophetic element attached to them as well. Um, we looked last week at the way in which the church at Ephesus lost their first love, which is a picture of the church, of the early, very early church, from, a, from the beginning of the church to about 100 AD. And now we're going to look at the church at Smyrna, which is the suffering church, the persecuted church. And this from about AD 100 to about 312. And the reason why we put it that is because then Constantine, who was emperor, he thought he saw a vision of the cross in one of his battles. And he won the battle, so he attributed to this so-called vision of the cross. So he then said, right, the whole Roman Empire will become Christian overnight. Now, of course, they're thoroughly pagan until then. So all the pagan temples and the pagan priests were to become Christian, shall we say, overnight. Pagan priests and the temples become a Christian overnight? Impossible. So that is when the persecution stopped, when the Roman Empire recognized Christendom, as we might call it, at the instructions of Constantine, the emperor, at that particular time. There have been terrible persecutions right through uh, until this time, the worst of them being Diocletian up to this time, before Constantine became emperor. Uh, I might mention the emperors later on. Um, so this was when the Roman Empire, so-called, said we will embrace Christendom at the instructions of our emperor. Of course, in a sense, it wasn't real salvation or new birth, was it? Uh, it was just an adoption of a religion called Christendom. So that's what actually happened. So we've got, if you look at your chart there, you'll find that the next one in line from Ephesus goes up to Smyrna, which is also on the coast, as you can see. And it's 37 miles northwest of Ephesus. Now, although there's a big distance overall with these seven churches, they all knew about each other. They all had their letter sent round as a circular letter to all seven churches. So how would you like to know uh, about other churches in your midst and for them to know about you uh, which may be a good thing or may not be a good thing that's not for me to say so this was a 
seaport, thriving business, an industrial centre being a seaport. It was prosperous in its economy. It was very wealthy. It was influential around the area in which they lived. And there were many Jewish people living there. We shall see when we read it in a moment. Today, there is a town there, but it's very much an Islamic town. Instead of called Smyrna, it's called Izmir. Sounds like Izmir in Turkey today. It's quite a large town. Now, let's read chapter 2 then. And we read from verses 8 to 9. 8 to 11, which is the persecuted church. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. I know your works, tribulation, poverty, but you're rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of those things which are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and you will have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let me hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Notice the plural, because each one had that letter of all the other churches, and about themselves, and about the others. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death which of course is after the great white throne this is the suffering church the persecuted church there are many people who oppose the gospel and the word Smyrna is typical or translated to be the word myrrh you know what myrrh is associated with Uh, gold, frankincense and myrrh brought by the wise men to Jesus when he was about two years old in the house, not when he was born. And uh, it symbolized suffering. Gold symbolized deity, frankincense symbolized worship and prayer, and myrrh symbolized suffering which Jesus would go through, as we know very well on that. So this was a persecuted church. Now as we move through these seven churches, we looked at Ephesus two weeks ago, the church that lost its first love. And Jesus was very critical of that church because of that. Now we come to Smyrna. And you see in the verses that we read in chapter 2 that there was no criticism by Jesus at all. This plus the church of Philadelphia, Jesus had no criticism, only praise, saying well done. But when we come to Pergamos in two weeks' time, it's the church which is married to the state, which is just like what Constantine suggested. After that comes Thyatira, which is the church, if you like, it means continual sacrifice, which is what the Roman Catholic Church does at the Mass. After that comes Sardis, which is where only a few really know the Lord because it's a dead church and it's a picture of the Reformation. Then you've got Philadelphia, number six, which is a church of brotherly love. Philadelphos, one who loves your brother. And it also was a missionary church because the Lord says, I set before you an open door. So this is a picture of progression right through to now, ending with a Laodicean church, which is apostate, and Jesus said, I'll spew you out of my mouth. So there is a, a progression of these seven churches from the very beginning, Ephesus, right through to Laodicea, now. 
and there are definite set periods. This one we look at now, Smyrna, from about 100-312 AD. So that's a picture of the seven churches. They all knew about each other. It has a prophetic element, as I've just said, and a historical element. Because these churches exist, even all of them today. There are Christians who cool off and lose their first love. There are Christians who are suffering persecution today. There are over 200 million Christians. Whether they're true believers, I couldn't tell you. But Open Doors puts this out, that are being persecuted around the world today. In big measure. Yes. The church is married to the state very much today, Roman Catholicism, Church of England, to some degree Methodism, and so on. <coughs> Roman Catholic Church is strong. Reformation Church, Sardis, a dead church, but a few that are alive. And the Church of Evangelizing, which is right now the mission, when the missionaries really began to get going in the 19th century through to now. So all these seven churches exist at the same time, in their types. But their progression through history at the same time. Quite unique. That's the way the Lord had it done. So that's just a background, I repeat, for those who weren't here. Now, of course, you know, back in uh, when the Hebrews were in Egypt, the Lord saw their suffering and said that he would deliver them. But you know, as you read on through the book of Revelation, that there are many who will be martyred. And the Lord didn't deliver them, but he says, I'll deliver you from the second death, but even though not the first death. There will be martyrs ever since the beginning of the church. No, it does deliver some. Others go through martyrdom who receive the crown of life, a special reward for that terrible suffering. But at the same time, as with all the churches, Satan works against it. Mm -hmm. And if you look in verses 9 and 10 of this, you find that the Lord says, so those who are Jewish people but are not, not true Jews, but they're of the synagogue of Satan. Oh my, that's a bit of a serious statement, isn't it? But he says, during the fear end of these things which are about to suffer, indeed the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, maybe tested and so on. Be faithful to death. And many of them were. Now it's unfortunate in a sense that we mention the Jewish people here. I'd like if you will go back to Romans, if you kindly would, back to Romans chapter 2. And you see what I'm getting at. Well, what the Apostle Paul, as a Holy Spirit, uh, speaks to him. Romans chapter 2. Now chapter 2 and chapter 3 certainly speak about the Lord through the Apostle Paul uh, speaking about the Jewish people. And in verses 28 and 29 of Romans 2. I'll read them. For circumcision, that's of the Jewish people, is indeed profitable if you keep the law. Now that's verse 25. But of course they can't. Down to verse 28, relating to the Jewish people. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, that is circumcision, physical, fleshly. I love you. And circumcision is out of the heart, the spiritual circumcision. That's those who are saved and separated out to the Lord. And not the letter, that's the law. Whose praise is not from men, but from God. Now, as you know, the Jewish leaders in the time of Jesus all look for the praise of men, the Pharisees, etc. 
So there are those many Jewish people who are in fact enemies of the gospel. Sad to say, but they are, they always have been. Mm. Today in Israel, the Orthodox or the extreme Orthodox Jewish people have anti-missionary meetings. I've seen them there in Israel when I've been there. Anti-missionary meetings. They're against the gospel. And uh, Paul also says something about that a bit later on. If you go to chapter 11 while we're in Romans, a little bit of a side issue, but relation because the Jews that are not. In chapter 11 of Romans, go on to one verse there, 28. 28. Chapter 11, 28. Concerning the gospel, and he's talking about the Jewish people in chapters 9, 10 and 11. Concerning the gospel, he says, they're enemies for your sake. Strange statement. But concerning the elect, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And we know that the Lord is going to restore remnant and save them later on at his second coming. Go back to chapter 3 with me while I think about it. In chapter 3. Look in verse 9. Sorry, Revelation 3 verse 9. I beg your pardon. Revelation 3 verse 9. Revelation 3 verse 9. This is the Philadelphian faithful church from what the Lord says. He says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan, that's the same as chapter 2, who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and know that I have loved you, Gentile church. Oh, praise the Lord, there are always Jewish people getting saved, and very especially now the Messianic Jews in Israel. And of course the Lord is working very much uh, for the purposes of Israel in the future, but it's not for today. So they despise the gospel, these Jewish people of their day. They despise the idea of justification by faith, because they want to do the works of the law. So they had this problem here. Now we leave that for the moment. So these, back in chapter 2, this church at Smyrna, these suffering Christians, the greatest blessing that anyone who suffers martyrdom or really suffering for the Lord, and this is relatively strange to us, we know that there is opposition to the gospel, opposition to the church and to Christians in our day here in this country developing, but there's not all the much downright persecution to real suffering. I know some are taken to court, we know that. But we haven't got physical persecution or the threat of death here. But in other places like China and the Middle East they certainly do. And in Russia in the past. So the greatest blessing that these suffering saints at Smyrna was to go after martyrdom in directly into the presence of their Saviour in glory. And they will have a crown of life. So if you look in chapter 2 verse 8 the Lord says to them these things says the first and the last, that's the Lord Jesus, who was dead and is and came to life. That's what he's saying to these suffering Christians. You may be martyred, but you're going to be raised to be with me. No, spiritually, anyone who's died in Christ is with the Lord. The body remains in the grave. But spiritually, they're with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And if any of these are martyred, even today, go straight to be with the Lord. The bodies are in the, in the grave. Or wherever, I know that's perfect. <coughs> but the Lord Jesus 
when he first came, in John's first letter, in chapter 3, go back a few pages. First John, chapter 3, a letter of John, not the Gospel, the first letter of John, chapter 3. Of course, Jesus, when he came, was very successful over Satan. You can see this in first letter of John, chapter 3, and verse 8. He was sinners of the devil. Well, plain enough. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Yes, Genesis. For the purpose the Son of God was manifested, this is why he came, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Not the devil himself yet. He's going to end up in the lake of fire. But he has destroyed the works of the devil. What's that? He caused sin. He caused death. He caused suffering. Jesus came and the grave and hell and the believers are rescued from that. Rescued from sin. We will be rescued from death if we go through death or maybe rapture. The grave mocks, Paul mocks the grave, doesn't he? And death. The end of 1 Corinthians 15. And hell, of course, that's been overcome for us as believers. Wonderful. The works of Satan have been overcome and defeated. Hallelujah. That's for us. You know that. That's very true. So, for these dear saints, if they do suffer, go back to uh, Revelation chapter 2 again. If they do suffer, they're going to be with the Lord. He says, be faithful unto death in verse 10, and I'll give you the crown of life. And they will be rewarded in that aspect as well. Of course, the Lord Jesus, back in the Gospel, he didn't turn to it. But in Matthew 10 and verse 28, I'll read it. Matthew 10, verse 28. The words of Jesus himself, of course. Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Mm. For those who remain unbelievers. Well, you know, Jesus is not that meek and mild sometimes, is he? Far from it. No. He's straight and honest and speaks even bluntly at times, if need be. So there's something about them. But we know, as in John's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 24, we who believe are passed from death to life. God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Passed from death to life. That's a promise. That's because Jesus died and rose again. Praise God. So that will happen to us as well. But you see, yes, this was a persecuted church, but also it was a poor church. And you can see what it says. He called James and John, didn't he? Uh, James and, sorry, Sons of Thunder. Who was that, James? Oh, James and John. Yeah, James John, and John, yeah. Sons of Thunder. Oh, bad tempered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look back in chapter 2 once again and see what the Lord says about them. In verse 9. He says, I know your works, I know you're serving me. You see, as in chapter 1 and beginning of uh, chapter 2, the Lord says, I walk among the lampstands. The lampstands represent the church. I walk among the churches, so I know what you're going through. I'm there with you. He's with us here tonight, though we don't see him, but he promised it, I'm with you always. Amen. That's it. So he says, I know your works, your tribulation, I know your troubles you're going through. Not the great tribulation, small t. And your poverty, a poor church. 
Now, one of the reasons for that, I mentioned it last time we met, was that these, when these people became believers, they really suffered poverty, loss of work and business, because before they were saved and converted, they were pagans. Remember that, they were pagans. And they would join special guilds, or if you like, like country clubs almost. Uh, the silversmiths had a guild together, a grouping. The goldsmiths, the coppersmiths, the woodworkers, they all had their groups together. And what they did, they exchanged business with each other. And then they went through a pagan ceremony of idolatrous worship and immorality. And when they became saved, they would come right out of that. So they couldn't engage in making business yeah. propositions. And they became poor. Mm. But they were spiritually rich. Praise God. Mm. So that was a scene where they were. Now the church at Philadelphia said, we're very rich. But the Lord said, no, you're not. You're very poor, mm. spiritually speaking. Wealthy in money, goods, possessions, yeah, maybe. But not this church. It was a poor church. Believers in Smyrna were denied business opportunities, social contacts. The shops were being boycotted, just like this was being boycotted by some today, even Christians, sad to say. So that's what's happened to them. And they were very much stricken with illness. That no one go, maybe the doctors wouldn't go and visit them. I don't know. But they were stricken with famine as well. So they really were suffering. A persecuted church, they were a poor church. But the Lord says, I see it, I am with you in it. Just like they're all with the three in the furnace in Daniel, you know. They're always with them. Oh, wonderful. Then. So this is a scene here. Now, in one sense, the great tribulation, this is not it, which comes later after the church has taken the view of the Lord. Because the church is not mentioned between chapter 6 and through to the end of chapter 18. It's only mentioned as a bride in chapter 19. The church is with the Lord through the great tribulation period. That's very clear. We need to say any more than that. But here they do have tribulations with a small t. Not the great tribulation. Now there will be tribulation saints, but they're not part of the church. The church is complete and gone to be with the Lord. But this is a foretaste of the tribulation when it comes. It won't be so great as that because we know what Antichrist will do in his persecution. That's certainly true. And Jesus said these words, very solemn words. It's in John 15, 18 to 20. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, not of its systems, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. Mm. Well, that's very extreme in some cases even today with the persecution that is endured by many. But Jesus knew all about this. He spoke to this church through the leader, no doubt. And they had this letter anyway, which the Apostle John wrote with the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus knew all about this. Would you go back to this wonderful letter to the Hebrews in chapter 2? Because these Hebrew Christians, the Jewish believers, they really suffered at the hands of their fellow Jews. Those who say they're Jews but are not. But of the synagogue of Satan, yes. Hebrews chapter 2 to begin with. A few chapters to help, a few, yeah, two chapters. In chapter 2, first of all, Hebrews. 
chapter 2. Look at verses 9 to 11. Chapter 2. This is all about the Lord Jesus. Look in verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, humanity, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory now, and honour, that him by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. We've been round the Lord's table today. Verse 10, For it was fitting for him for whom are all things, by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory and daughters, to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. <coughs> he never suffered before he came down here, did he? No. So you have to learn about that. For both he who sanctifies, the one who separates out and makes holy, and those who are being sanctified, set apart, made holy, are all of one. That's unity with him. For re- which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. That's wonderful, isn't it? Mm. He suffered. Don't be surprised if you do. If you identify with me. Go to chapter 4, Hebrews 4, 14 to the end. Chapter 4, 14. Seeing then that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. You're going through difficulties, hold fast your confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, members concerned for the church in Smyrna, but we in all points are tempted but he was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Yeah. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And they were in great need. Hallelujah. So that applies to the church at Smyrna. They were going through it. Jesus went through far worse than that. Yeah. Go on to chapter 5. Chapter 5. See, these Jewish believers are really having a, a suffering time from their fellow Jews especially. Verse 7 of chapter 5. This is again about the Lord Jesus. In the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications, with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, Jesus wept. Shortest verse in scripture. And was heard because of his godly fear as a son of God. Though he was a son, or the son, for he learned obedience by the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So he knows what we go through because he went through far worse. Now finally go to chapter 7. Chapter 7. Chapter 7. We'll come back to Hebrews a bit later on. 24. Chapter 7, 24. This is verses unchangeable priesthood. Our great high priest praying for us praying for the persecuted to strengthen them maybe not deliver them but strengthen them verse 24 but he because he continues forever has an unchangeable priesthood therefore he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them for such a high priest verse 26 was fitting for us with holy harmless undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens what an encouragement to believers yeah. who's saying I have a high priest yeah. he's a great high priest Amen. he's a chief <coughs> he's praying for me 
Praise God. Praying for them, praying for the persecuted church today. What were the other? Let's look in uh, uh, in chapter 12. Just while we're in Hebrews, we might just sit down. Chapter 12, verses 2 to 4. Chapter 12, 2 to 4. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin. Well, some did lose their lives, shed their blood. But Jesus has been through it all. It's quite something, isn't it? And of course, later on it says, look, you Jewish believers, you suffer the loss of goods, you suffer the loss of employment, you might even have your house burned down. And they lost everything. So it's happened to believers today, in the Middle East in particular. So Jesus said, but don't be surprised if they hate you because they hated me. Smyrna church, you're the suffering church. You're the persecuted church. You're the poor church, but you're spiritually very rich. You didn't turn to, but in Romans chapter 5 is interesting. 3 to 5. We glory in tribulation. That's hard. Glory in trouble. Knowing that tribulation, what it does for us, it produces patience. Patience produces experience. Experience produces hope. And hope does not make that person ashamed. Because the love of God, love of God is shed abroad in the hearts by the Holy Spirit. He's the one, he's the comforter. It comes from two Latin words, come forte, to be with strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8.10 This is practical. Tom, the scripture reference for that again, please. What? The, the joy of the Lord is your strength? Before that, the... Um, oh, the one in Romans. Actually, that, yeah, what was it? Romans? Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Thank you. As I read just now. And in chapter 8, verse 18, I quote this one for the church at Smyrna, for the saints suffering today. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I'll read that again. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Not just to us, as I said before, but in us. As a glory was shone through the Lord Jesus at his transfiguration. One day the Lord is going to make the glory of the Lord shine through us. Can you imagine it? Not really. God, foreign to us, isn't it? Alright, now back to Revelation chapter 2. And look at verse 10. This is what the Lord says to the suffering church. The persecuted church. The physically poor church. Do not fear any of those things which are about to suffer. You are about to suffer. He warns them. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested and you will have tribulation ten days. So you know who the responsible for Christians in prison, don't you? Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. What's all that about? Martyr's crown. Yeah, the martyr's crown. But why 
why ten days? Well, there are two thoughts about that. The first one, and I'm not very comfortable with it, it's a matter of truth to it. The first one is, it covers ten periods of persecution under ten different emperors. I'll give you their names. You know one of them, Nero. He was a terrible man. Only had a garden party once. He took some of the Christians, covered them in pitch and fire, burned them to a big stake and set fire to them as lights for his garden party. AD 66. In Rome. Hmm. Domitian was a terrible man. Trajan, Antonius, Severus, Maximum, Decius, Phileus, Aurelius, and Diocletian the worst. Don't bother about their names. And that covered a period of 300 years up to 312. This persecuted period. But the other element is actual ten days. When a, a Christian was arrested because he refused to worship the emperor, he was put in prison. He was brought on the first day and was called to bow down to an effigy of that Roman emperor and burn incense to him and call him a god. The Christian, of course, they know. The Lord is my God. And he's my king. He put back in the prison. Came out day two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Come out to day ten. Again, the first thing, put to him. You bow down, you worship the emperor, you burn incense to him, call him your God. And he said, no. They beheaded him after ten days. That's what you got here. You will be tested. You will have this tribulation for ten days. You will not bow the knee to Caesar, but they won't bow the knee to Caesar or their head or their heart. Martyred, beheaded. That was the scene. There was one man called Polycarp. You've heard of him. He was the Bishop of Smyrna, a good one too. <clears throat> he was burned at the stake in 155 AD. And the Jewish people took part in that, by the way, historically speaking. Polycarp was offered his freedom if he would say, Caesar is Lord. Three words. But he said, no. I'm adamant about my love for my Lord Jesus Christ. His last words as he was at the stake was this. Eighty-six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And he died at the stake burnt. Mm. 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 That was it. Yes, it was a persecuted church. It was a poor church, but it was a privileged church. Look in verse 9. I know your works, tribulation, poverty, but you're rich. You're rich. Privileged church. I could take you back to Ephesians chapter 1. Have we got time to do that? Yes, we have. All right, go to Ephesians chapter 1. Well, you know, this is written to that church way back as we considered last week. Ephesians chapter 1. Go back to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll spend a little while in this, just for a while. Just a few verses, not many. Chapter 1, first of all, in Ephesians, verse 3. This is the privilege, and this is the riches that you and I enjoy in the truth of the Word of God. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ. How about that? Blessed with every spiritual blessing. You're not missing a thing spiritually. Physically, yes. Not spiritually. You've got everything. Chapter 1, verse 3. Go to chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, rich in his love to us. Well, that's spiritual wealth, isn't it? Yeah. Look in verse 6 and 7. He's raised us up together. We're in the resurrection life already now, although we're down here. Spiritually, it's true. And made us sit together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come, future, he might show the exceeding riches. I mentioned that before, last week. Exceeding, you can't measure that amount. It's exceeding. Riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Oh, how about that? Rich? Privilege? Oh, say, that's you. That's the church of Smyrna. Remarkable. Go to chapter 3. This is Paul's prayer at the end. 16 to 21. Well, I'll just scan this quickly rather than read it all. Grant you accordingly the riches of his glory. Strengthened. Verse 16. Christ dwelling in our hearts. Yes, he does. That we understand with all the saints the depth, width, length, height, depth to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge, filled with all the fullness of God. I don't understand that. Mm-hmm. Now to him who is able to do exceeding above all we ask or think, verse 20, according to the power that works in us, God's power works in you, resurrection power. To him be glory in the church. Wow, riches? I'll say. Grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. Oh, that's how it is. Privileged church, a rich church, Smyrna, yes. Sometimes, of course, we know that the Lord does trust believers with material prosperity so that they can use it as a good steward to serve the Lord in all sorts of ways. So some Christians are prosperous. Some people uh, are called upon to be responsible with what they have if, if they're blessed in that way. Some are. And in James chapter 2, 5, it says... Believers are rich in faith, like we saw in Ephesians. Rich in faith, rich in every sense, rich with every spiritual blessing. Because faith is the gift of God. You don't work it up inside, you send it in. Thank you, Don. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Amen. That's right. I was going to ask you about that later. <laughs> there you are. Yeah. Yes, faith is a gift from God. You didn't have it before, so where would it come from? Only one person. Praise God. Yes, that's right. Well, that's certainly true. We're rich in faith, uh, James 2, 5, that is. Um, and then, of course, there is a warning to those who happen to be rich. Just a bit of a side issue. Because uh, Paul writes to Timothy in this way, in chapter 6. Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not haughty, nor trust in their riches, which are uncertain. But you trust in the living God, who gives richly all things to enjoy. Amen. He does give richly all things to enjoy. Because they're from him anyway. You, you and I don't own anything. No. We don't own a thing. It's all trusted to us. Mm. Maybe poor, but we are spiritually rich. So these suffering Christians, yeah, in Smyrna, they weren't promised deliverance from their death. 
Some might have been, of course. But they suffered a lot. And the Lord was with them in their suffering. He'd been there before. So what did he do? Well, in this, he offered them courage, he offered them comfort, and he gave them a certain hope. See, hope, again, is something which you and I, which is certain. It's no wonder about it. It's no uncertainty about it. It's a certain hope, you and I. It's a promise of God. That's why it's certain. Wonderful there. And the strange thing, because of the fire of affliction, the fire of affliction can light the candle which burns more brightly and brilliantly. The candle of your life is the light of the world living in you. And if you're suffering so often and people make a stand in their suffering, doesn't that show Christ is real? That's brightness. That's shining for the Lord. Who is the light of the world and we're little lights of the world and we're the salt of the earth. I'll go back to Hebrews with me. Come too close almost. Hebrews again. Chapter 10 this time. You can see I've mentioned this before. Only briefly. Just to come up to finish. Hebrews 10, verse 32 to 36. This is how these believers suffered, these Jewish Christians. Yes, hands of the Romans may be, but certainly among the Jewish, the Jewish people. Chapter 10, if you look at that please, and verse 32, 32. But recall the former days in which after you were enlightened you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations they were mocked. They were called traitors as Jewish believers. Still are. In part of the while you became companions of those who were so treated, there are others too. For you had compassion on me, probably poor writing, in my chains. Mm-hmm. And you often accepted the plundering of your goods, what you I lost you. through I your suffering you. and persecution. Knowing that the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possessions for yourselves in heaven. Put your treasure there, said Jesus. Mm. Amen. Put your treasure there. Because you can lose it down here. Rust, rust, moth, robbery. Can deal with it. Mm. Yeah. Great recompense and reward for these suffering Christians. I'm just to finish off with what about myrrh? Smyrna. Myrrh. Where does that come from? Just to finish off. Bit of a lighter note. Myrrh was produced by crushing the bark of a small plum-like fruit of a tree and producing a gum or a resin. When crushed, it produced a wonderful fragrance. It was a principal export from Smyrna. There's no mention of myrrh in the millennium, no suffering in the millennium. I love you. Myrrh is mentioned three times in the New Testament. It was brought by the wise men, I mentioned before. It was mixed with sour wine offered to Jesus on the cross, second time. And also, it was used in burial and embalming of those who had died. Remember Nicodemus 
And Joseph Arimathea tried to go, as he did, to beg the body of Jesus, and they wanted so to treat that. But of course, it was the Sabbath next day, they didn't touch the body. So they had to leave it. Of course, Jesus had to be raised complete from the death. So there we have. Old Testament, mirrors mentioned. It's mentioned in connection with oil. It's a mixture of the oil that anointed Aaron and the priests for their ministry. It's spoken of as a perfume in Psalm 45, verse 8, and in Proverbs, and the Song of Solomon. But the myrrh comes from the crushing of the sinner fruit and producing a tremendous fragrance. Mm-hmm. And it seems that when Christians suffer, it produces a fragrance of Christ, mm-hmm. sensed by all around them. Mm-hmm. Church of Smyrna, suffering, persecuted, poor but privileged and spiritually rich will all make up to them with a crown of life mm. this church is real it existed then it exists today but it's not a word but it's a church that was very real and true to the Lord and never gave in mm. may we be the same if it ever comes to us Amen.